Welcome to State House Soundbites, WITF's Pennsylvania politics podcast. I'm Katie Meyer, State Capitol Bureau Chief for WITF, and it is what time is it, guys? Eleven ten. It's eleven ten. Friday morning. We're in Little Lamps Coffee Shop, and with me today is Liz Navratil with the Pittsburgh Post Gazette and Stephen Caruso with the PLS Reporter. Hey guys, welcome. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> and it's Stephen's first time on the podcast. He's relatively new to the cap. How how long have you been working here now? In the capital since mid-March. Mid-March. So first impressions. Um, you know, it moves fa- really fast and then moves really slow. <laughs> and overall, though, I, I'm I'm enjoying it because yeah. it's nice being the center of a of a thriving democracy of Pennsylvania. <laughs> well said. And we did have some action this week after sort of a dead couple of weeks. The podcast has actually been on hiatus for two weeks because of scheduling issues. But um, we are back now. The legislature is back in session. Um, and one of the, I think, largest legislative things on the table this week, other than, like, waiting for news on the budget, has been redistricting. And so it's sort of been, I think, tortured progress on this, you know, reform effort to get us to an independent citizens commission to do our redistricting for congressional districts. So, um, Liz, what have we seen this week? So this was the week of sort of, like, small but potentially important developments. Um, There are a bunch of different redistricting efforts. On the Senate side, there's a bill that has made it out of committee and um, had a committee vote this week, and we have been told to expect it to have some pretty substantial amendments coming next week and that they hope to get it out of the Senate next week. Now, exactly what's going to be in that amendment... um, It's hard to say. We'll be able to tell you next week, I hope. Yeah. Um, On the House side, there were several bills that um, ended up stalling in the state government committee that is run by uh, Daryl Metcalf, um, which has been a, a source of tension, particularly for Democrats who have expressed broader concerns with Representative Metcalf's um, desire not to move Democratic legislation. And interestingly, a um, small number of those bills that had been reintroduced are now going through the Rules Committee Mm -hmm. um, run by Dave Reed rather than um, through Daryl Metcalf's committee. So it's kind of small stuff this week, but with some potentially interesting political ramifications. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, I want to talk real quick, and we'll kind of get into like the broader picture, but the Senate bill, this is the bill that has gotten... Out of all the redistricting bills, SB 22 has been in the works for like over a year at this point. And um, it uh, has been, has seen hearings recently. Um, it's a Democrat-sponsored bill. Lisa Boscola of Lehigh County is behind it. But a lot of other, you know, Republicans and Democrats are on it. Republican uh, chair of the Senate State Government Committee, Mike Fulmer, has been really pushing it recently. And so what's happened to this bill is uh, it kind of went from being... Uh, a, a, a general independent citizens commission uh, bill that was backed by a lot of you know outside advocacy groups to a more compromise measure that Republicans were able to get on board with. So, uh, Stephen, what like as it is now because we know it's probably going to get amended, but as it is now, what's in there? So, what's in there is a a bill that lawmakers have some choice in. The original SB twenty two language that Senator Boscola's bill was entirely the, the, the lawmakers could basically veto a few names that were put into a pool, but they were were hands-off. But in this new language, what you're seeing is a pool is set up of applicants that then lawmakers 
specifically you have the Senate Majority Leader and the Senate Minority Leader, also House and uh, Majority and Minority Leaders. They get to choose members from, they then need approval by those chambers, mm-hmm. and then the governor also gets to put people in. So yeah, so I think it's four for the ch- or four for each of the parties in the House and Senate, and then three for the governor. Exactly. So yeah. you're talking eleven member commissioners. Eleven commissioners. It's the same amount that you had in the old bill, but th- I mean it's really a sea change in the bill because advocates were told for a long time that you know we want an independences and uh, commission and. You know, I've had I've had people mention that they feel like those two words can't even be used to describe this bill. It, well, yeah, and this bill basically, and this is the compromise they had to make to get those Republican, those coveted Republican votes for this. They had to give the legislature more power back. Another really controversial component of this is who has the power to like break a tie in the commission, basically, or break an impasse. Um, you know, they didn't want it to go to the legislature, but under this bill, currently, that's where it would go. The legislature would have the power to, you know, move the bill if there was an impasse in the commission. So now, um, we saw, after this language came out, because I think it was like a week ago or two weeks ago now, um, I think 14 different advocacy groups kind of came together and they uh, signed a letter saying that they did not want the bill to be, uh, t- to happen. Um you and I both talked to Lisa Boscola this week about it, and she was really quite angry, um, frustrated about you know the kind of large opposition. We weren't going to get Senate Bill 22 out of the Senate if there weren't changes that the Republicans wanted. That's the legislative process. That's what we have. But some groups want purity, and that's what I'm saying. It's stupid to think that anybody's going to get purity out of this building. It never happens. Yeah, I, I think from her perspective, what it was that... Uh, my understanding is a lot of these groups have been coming into advocating on redistricting rather late. When you look at, there's kind of the original coalition of three groups. Mm. You have Common Cause PA, Fair Districts PA, and Legal Women Voters who spearheaded the lawsuit against the gerrymandered maps originally that started this whole trek. Um, they've been on this topic for a while, um, and, and their support, like especially Common Cause, it's wavered a bit, but they're still pushing for the bill, and now what you've had is this other coalition come out and start to oppose it, and I think that's what she was so angry about, yeah. is the idea that these groups who hadn't pushed back in March or April are now coming in near the end and starting to oppose it. Yeah. And uh, so, Liz, you mentioned amendments are likely. We do not know what those amendments are going to be at this point, right? I mean, it hasn't. it's being drafted. I mean, part of the... Um criticism that some folks have expressed of the bill as it stands now is that it leaves some pretty big things up to what they would call enacting legislation. Right. And enacting legislation is basically a fancy way of saying if this were to go through um, to the floor through the legislature twice and go to a referendum then the voters would end up having to decide whether or not to support this without knowing the answers to some basic questions about what qualifications might be, yeah. what, what could get you kicked on or off. Well, it's and like I who can be where, on the commission, yeah. That's where part of the anxiety seems to come in. Yeah. Um, and you and I were talking to Senator Costa and some of the things, and he voted to get this bill out of committee, so he wants it to move. But some of his concerns that he was bringing up were that, you know, for instance, can lawmakers serve on the commission? No. Can their family members serve? Can their staff serve? Who's allowed? Can Who's former not? staff serve? Can former staff serve? How long do you have to be a member of a party to be considered a member of that party on the commission? You know, what's the? How do we judge whether independents are truly independent? So all of these very important questions haven't been answered yet. Uh, one of the things that Pascola did tell us, and you know, I haven't seen any real documentation of this, so I do not know. But she was very adamant that in the final bill. 
um, the legislature would not get the power to break the impasses um, if the commission couldn't come up with a solution. That would go to the Supreme Court. So, I mean, whether she's going to be able to pull that off and, you know, the Democrats who want that are going to be able to pull it off, we'll see. But now, um, that's just the Senate. So we're expecting to get this bill onto the Senate floor in the coming week. And hopefully, I mean, they say hopefully out by Wednesday. Now, then it goes to the House. Um, We've also heard various things from the House, Liz. You mentioned that they kicked Dave, basically Dave Reed got his own bill, finagled his own bill into his own committee so that they could consider it there. They also ended up dumping six other redistricting-related bills in there yesterday, which was interesting. Um, But they're all very different, and none of them have gotten very much discussion at all. I think they might caucus them next week. But uh, it's like, what is the situation in there? We talked to Dave Reed earlier this week, right? Yeah, yeah we did. Um, Dave sort of described his redistricting bill as basically another option they can put out there in discussions. Um, the impression I've gotten is that at least on the House side, they're still trying to figure out, like, okay, who's on board with doing a commission for congressional and legislative lines versus just congressional lines and and those kinds of big questions. I mean, if you really like zoom out of the processy stuff, at the end of the day, the legislature is deciding whether it should keep the power to draw lines for its own races and for congressional races or whether it should hand it over to other people. So you have that sort of interesting like kind of underlying power question. And then there's one of the things that I have found very difficult as a reporter is trying to figure out, okay, who is behind redistricting 100%, redistricting reform 100%, right. who is, like, on board with the idea but not the concepts, who likes the optics of it but is maybe reluctant <laughs> to move forward, right. who hates the concept. And it, it, There's a lot of different positions on here, and it's all really scatters, scattered right now. And I think the fact that some of these activist groups disagree... I get the sense that some people are genuinely concerned about that and others are like, well, if I was on the fence, is this my my way yeah. of saying I am, I'm not going to support it at this point? Exactly. So there's definitely, I mean, is that the impression you've gotten as well? Yeah, and one thing to go back is like, you know, when it comes to the Supreme Court as the uh, arbiter, I think, you know, that's always going to have concern because of how that ruling went. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, it, back in, in January. Like, like that that's a tricky question. People are concerned about giving the Supreme Court any role because... Republicans are still angry about that ruling. They still think they're still their own authority. It's a very fresh wound that they still like. I'm not kidding. Like people are very upset about it still. It's very divisive. Oh my in, god! In yeah. the building. Yeah. And one thing that's interesting too, when it comes to that House committee in rules, yeah. one of the bills referred over is a bill from Representative Steve Samuelson, which matches the original language of SB 22, the Senate bill. Yeah. So before the compromise, that the still the original Independence's Commission modeled off their California's right. bill. That bill is now in Dave Reed's Rules Committee, mm-hmm. and that bill has... So the original was gunned and replaced by Daryl Metcalf, right. much to advocates' rage. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and, and now this one, that, that that original bill had 110 co-sponsors. This new bill is back up to Benko's, like, 94 at my last yeah. check. Like, they're just been trying to build support the advocates and the sponsors. So, I, I mean, I feel like now that it's in rules, it's uh, kind of like, who knows what's going to happen there? You have a yeah. committee with a ton of 
leadership and they're just going to have to hash it out. Well, and that is interesting. And I think just to perseverate on that issue, it's really just a process thing. But I do think it's really interesting that it went to rules because like substantive legislation does not go to rules usually. Usually that's bills that are like budget bills, you know, that needed that already went to a different committee that need to go there. Or it's bills that are coming through on concurrence from the Senate. So to put these redistricting bills in rules, it's not technically against the rules of the chamber, I checked, but it is very unusual. And so I I also want to mention, though, um, and this is like, you know, in conversations with people that I've had, you know, Daryl Metcalf has gotten a lot of flack from people who want to change the redistricting process. But people do say, like, listen, if, if there is like consensus in the House and leadership is behind a plan, no matter what committee it goes into, like if it went to Metcalf's committee, Metcalf would pass the plan. He doesn't have the power to stand in the way of leadership like that. And the thing that's going to be really interesting about this sort of small move is to see if it reverberates into other legislation. Right. Because the Democrats have been very openly critical of Daryl Metcalf, and they've raised this on issues um, about like anti-discrimination legislation and all sorts of other things. So I think there were a lot of Democrats who looked at this decision to send these pieces of legislation to rules and said, okay, yeah, you've proven that these things can actually go there. So are you going to do that for all these other issues? Yeah. So And then worth noting, too, I mean, Dave Reed was the force behind these things going into rules in the first place. And he's out in January. He's retiring, going to a different job, probably. So, and Daryl Metcalf <laughs> is running for re-election, yes, too. Mike Terzai, who was the one who ultimately can say, yes, we're sending it here, or no, we're sending it there, is also up for re-election. Yep. So, um, interesting things. And for what it's worth, I had a chance to catch up with uh, Representative Metcalf earlier this week, yeah. and he said that, um, you know, rules does, like, as you mentioned, rules doesn't often handle substantial things, but if uh, Dave Reed wanted to send him his redistricting bill, he'd be happy to take a look at and it. And that's the impression that I've gotten from Metcalf as well in those discussions. So, interesting state of affairs, but I think just to like leave it uh, on a point of like, where is this going to go? Um, they have, uh, depending on who you talk to, we were just talking about this on the way in, either a hard or soft deadline of July like 6th or 7th um, to get this done. Because as we know, you know, if you're going to change the redistricting process, you've got to amend the Constitution. That means passing the exact same language two sessions in a row. And if you want to get it done by the 2021 redistricting, literally it has to be done in like a month. So part of the reason this has to be done so far in advance, it's very wonky and it has to do with sort of how far in advance the state has to post notice of Mm -hmm. a different thing. So without boring people with all those intimate details that truthfully I am still trying to nail down (laughs) myself, um, that's sort of the short explanation for why we care about this 2021 development at this right. point in 2018. And it's also, I mean, I, I think the reason, like, July 6th or 7th is such a funny deadline is, like, you know, we've talked to people in the House who say, like, yeah, we could probably push it farther if we really needed to. But if, like, they're going to push something farther, that means they have to have, like, a plan that they are going to all get on board with. Like, I can't see them coming into session in July otherwise. And that also, I mean, like, the budget is due June 30th. If they all, as they're saying, they're going to get the budget done around that time and, like, no promises that that'll happen. But if they do it, they're not coming back into session in July. They're gone. They're all on vacation. So, I I mean, it's really hard to see an eventuality where they go into July on this thing. Uh, Yeah, it's... What I think is most interesting, though, just when going back to the plans real quick, is that when you... Like, there is a lot of concern that 
the compromise amendment in the Senate isn't pushing pushing far enough, that yeah. it's still leaving a lot of power with legislators. But what's interesting is when you look at California, which is the gold standard plan people talk about, they put that plan in place of just a popular referendum. Yeah. There was no two amendments through the state house. There was no trying to appease the lawmakers to get a plan from the people. It was just popular referendum, and that makes a huge difference. It, you, it's kind of like a case study in when you have to, when you can work outside the system or when you have to work through the system. Yeah, I, I mean, Pennsylvania and California are so different in how they change their constitutions. It's hard here. Um, so for what it's worth, I mean, that's kind of where it is. I'll, I, I think this is a good way of putting it. We were talking to um, Dave Reed the other day, and he was like, at this point, with this bill, with this issue, we're at like 40,000 feet. He mentioned the governor might be even higher up. The governor might be at like 60,000 feet because he's been like not super involved in the process thus far. Um, so, you know, a lot remains to be seen on this. We do not have any indications that there, this is going to be an issue that's going to be tied up in a nice bow, nice bow next week, for example. I doubt it's going to be tied up in a nice bow next week. But, you know, the House might caucus on it and maybe crazy, you know, crazy things have happened. So we'll leave that there for now. But there will be more on redistricting coming up. I also want to talk about um, now former Senator Scott Wagner, who's running for governor. He resigned this week. Um, I think we all covered it, Liz. Uh, takeaways from his resignation, his resignation speech that he made on the Senate floor. Yeah, I mean, his his resignation speech, in, in a lot of ways, sort of paralleled different things we've heard from him on the campaign trail. Yep. Um, he talked about the same issues we've heard before. He um, basically says he's hoping, hoping now to focus on the governor's race. Yeah. Um, so, of course, we're all going to be watching that. It's kind of interesting that this comes in June... Um, a little bit before the budget deadline. Yeah, and I think people have sort of given him some flack for that. The, you know, Wolf's campaign has been like, ah, he's abdicating his duties. But there's another school of thought that's like, hey, if you're going to, you know, run for governor, you can't be splitting your time. So, you know, I, I, I think the Senate the Senate commended him for, Senate Republican leadership commended him for making that decision. And even Jay Costa, who's the highest ranking Democrat, had some... some yeah, he sounded some nice things to say on the floor, essentially thanking him for his service kind of remarks. I mean, yeah. it was not by any means like an endorsement to right. of but Scott I, Wagner over Tom Wolf. I don't want to mischaracterize it that way, but it was very collegial. It was I guess not I negative, say. is what I would say. And I actually was interested in that. Um, so Wagner gave basically, I think, kind of a stump speech on the Senate floor. Um, and at the end of it, and obviously, you know, he was touting himself, did a little bit of bashing on Wolf. But Costa came up. I thought he might do like a rebuttal type thing. But no, he was just like, hey, bye, friend. That was kind of the tone. Um, (laughs) Not that he's like an Italian mobster. That's kind of what that sounded like. But anyway, um, Stephen, one of the things I thought was interesting about Wagner's goodbye speech was that he like apologized in it a, a little bit. Yeah, he, he. I'm trying to remember exactly how he worded, but it I was, have the uh, I have the transcript oh, here. Let me let me read it, and then we can talk about it. So Wagner said this sort of in the middle of his speech. I came to Harrisburg with a strong personality and a strong will to get things accomplished. I admit that I wish I would have given more thought to some of the things I said when I first took office. But I'm the type of person, when I dive into projects, I know need close attention and present opportunities. I become very driven and sometimes overly passionate. If I have offended people inside this chamber, other people in the building, or state government, I offer my apology. This is an an unusual thing for Scott Wagner to do. 
it definitely plays against its part because I remember talking to primary voters on election day and they were all saying that like one, one of them described him as you know he has a bulldog personality that cited him as he's like Trump they yeah. like that about him and then then turn around and apologize it, it definitely <laughs> plays against that type yeah. um, I, I have to wonder who that's for is that for his Senate colleagues is that for the media yeah I, or like, like you know <laughs> but either way uh, it, it I think he mentioned afterwards that, you know, this is, it, it's good for people to come out and sometimes admit they're wrong. And, yeah. you know, that is a good attitude, I think, for anyone to have, uh, <laughs> especially a politician. Yeah. Well, we did ask him, like, are you apologizing for anything specific that you did? He was like, no, it's just a broad apology. So one of the things that's interesting, too, is that running for a primary, you have a very different audience of just one party versus running in the general election where you're now people from the opposite party and dependents all get to also cast their votes. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to watch not only Scott, but also Tom Wolf to figure out kind of how they navigate the next couple months. Yeah, totally. And now that Scott Wagner is spending more time on his campaign, we see him we're sort of getting a sense of like what his campaign is going to be, I think. And so far what that was, was he made a big issue this week of cleaning up a park in Philadelphia, which was, I thought, an interesting decision. Um, he basically he went to Malcolm X Park in West Philly and for like a campaign event saw that the grass was overgrown and that there was some trash strewn around and challenged the mayor to clean up the park and said, if you don't do it, I'm going to do it. Um, the mayor's office was like, there's scheduled maintenance, we're doing it. And they did have people out there. I guess they had people out there. This was on a Saturday that Wagner noticed this problem. Um, the mayor, or the uh, city officials had people out there Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. But then Wagner brought his own crew on Wednesday and was like, you guys did a bad job. And I think sent some city workers home and did it himself with his crew from York. Spent like seven hours. I talked to him about it. I was very curious. Um, spent like seven hours cleaning up the park. And uh, he was like, listen, I saw a problem and I fixed it. And was like you know, very adamant about that. Others in city government, which is a Democratic administration, said this was a weird political stunt that he was pulling and he didn't need to. And, you know, who's to say? The thing that I find interesting about this is sort of the Philly aspect. I know Angela Columbus um, from The Inquirer, she and I work together very closely. And when we um, were interviewing him in the lead up to the primary, he was also talking about Philadelphia. And I really, I mean, part of that could be because we're journalists who cover Philadelphia. So that could be doing it. But it was interesting to see sort of this other Philly um, event come yeah. up a, a short while after. It'll be interesting to see if, if he's if, focusing a lot there. And that is interesting. And I think you also, I in my a large amount of research I did on this grass thing. Um, I talked to a ward leader who like represents that area, and he was saying like I think he was like a little bit suspicious of like why he was cleaning up that particular park, but like you know who knows. Um, but he did say like listen, we don't get a lot of Republicans in here like in West Philadelphia, so like by all means, if he wants to give us attention, I'm not going to complain. So you know an interesting you know subset of, you know, that decision on Wagner's part to to take Philly with a lawnmower. You know, I, I would have to agree with that board <laughs> leader. Like, it, it's it's good to have people, you know, campaign it everywhere, put Democrats in the middle of Johnstown, put Republicans in the middle of Pittsburgh East End. Just, yeah. I, I can't see that being a bad strategy, but then again, they don't pay me to uh, run campaigns. <laughs> <laughs> good point. None of us get paid to run campaigns. Well, and also, clean parks are not necessarily a divisive issue. It's not like abortion or 
um, your any other number right. of like very but divisive although, issues. Although they did manage to work a divisive issue in there, uh, oh. Dim Kenny, uh, the mayor, was like, "Well, you know." Thank God for the soda tax, because that's what gives us money to clean up parks, and we need to strengthen it. And Wagner was like, why is the soda tax paying for your upkeep of parks? And the soda tax, like, a, a stated, you know, goal in the soda tax was, like, you know, improvements to parks and public areas. I don't know if that goes to, like, routine maintenance necessarily, but maybe it would go to equipment. I don't know. So anyway, <laughs> the soda tax was all worked into that. And there's bills right now in the House and the Senate to repeal the soda tax and to get rid of it across the state. So a uh, hot-button issue that we are seeing currently. So never Welcome fail. to election year. <laughs> never, <laughs> even if it's just like a lawnmower, it can have some real political implications. Um, okay, real quick before we wrap up, um, Governor Wolf this week, um, we got to talk to him. He doesn't do a lot of press conferences for reporters necessarily, but we did get him uh, this week at one where he was doing something on... Uh, wage discrimination. Liz, you were there? Yeah, so um, what the governor did is he signed an executive order that would um, essentially prohibit the administration from asking salary history for a certain subset of job applicants. Mm. And um, his rationale there is that if you look at wage disparities, they sometimes become baked in. So the hope is that if you're not asking, you're not going to essentially end up lowballing them yep. in, into that disparate salary. Um, now, this is going to apply currently to people in management positions and people who are not subject to a um, essentially a union contract. Yeah. And we asked why it doesn't apply to everyone and we're told that the way the some of the union contracts are set up essentially requires them to ask that question and that this is something that the governor hopes to negotiate out of future contracts. Yeah. One of the interesting things I think is like when you think of state salaries, you don't necessarily think of like there being a lot of room to like, you know, change them based on what people were making previously. Um, and we did ask this, like how many people would this actually affect? Are you expecting salaries to really go up now? And he was basically like, listen, I don't necessarily know to what extent this is even a problem in state government. But the point that he was making, I guess, was that uh, there's no stated policy about whether, you know, people who are hiring for state government can ask for employment history right now. So whether or not it's even being done, this will at least you know, codify it and say, OK, you can't do that. So, go ahead. Well, and it seems like it's all part of this is how you change culture. Yeah. You try and you put policies in, even if they have a slow running impact. You know, it's not impacting maybe the day to day workers who might have a union contract. But I mean, this is imagine how you do it. You just have to make sure from the top that it's clear we're not going to find this acceptable and you hope it keeps well, pushing down. Yeah. And the real goal here is to like bring this standard over into like private industry. So there are a bunch of bills in the House and in the Senate right now. Um, a couple of them have just been introduced, actually, and they would basically, you know, ban employers full stop in Pennsylvania from asking for salary history when they're hiring. Uh, they haven't gone anywhere at this point, but I think, you know, and Wolf has done this a couple times where if he can't get something passed, he'll do an executive order and do it to the extent that he can in the state. And try to, you know, again, a cultural shift, as Stephen said. And, if, and you're seeing that in a lot of, uh, like, you're seeing that Pittsburgh, you're seeing that Pennsylvania, you're seeing that in a lot of the cities in the state as you have more liberal, you know, urban centers kind of revolting, 
powerful thing, but pushing back on the fact that there is a more conservative state legislature that you need to pass changes. Uh, I mean, you see this with paid sick leave, you see this with the soda tax. Yeah. You see this in a lot of places as the executive authority tries to do what it can. They'll do unilaterally what they can. Yeah. And yeah, and then set an example, hopefully, and then just prod the legislature until <laughs> hopefully maybe they do something or maybe someday. You, you know, have an election. Yeah. So anyway, that was that. Um, and I think that's really all the stuff that happened this week, so we can leave it there. Um, are you guys watching anything other than, I guess, you know, redistricting is going to be the big one in the coming weeks? And also the budget? Yes, yeah. the budget. I, I mean, everything I've been hearing about the budget is sort of this sense of optimism and this <laughs> desire to get it done on time. But we've heard that before. But I understand this is something that happens every year, although with it being an election year, perhaps there's... Uh, a higher chance it will get done. Yeah. Um, but I nobody has told me at this point, like, we have a deal and here's what it is. So. Yeah, there's no deal. And as far as I know, like, the rank and file haven't been told anything, which is always sort of an indication that, like, it's still being negotiated on a leadership level. So. And these things also, like, I, it, the sense I get is that from the outside it will seem like there's not a lot of movement and then it moves very, very yeah. rapidly. Yeah. Um, That's usually how it happens. Um, but in the case of, like, for instance, last year when there was a like, four-month impasse, it just, you know, moves very slowly for four months. Um, you remember that time I started working in Harrisburg at the beginning of July <laughs> and thought we were almost done with the budget? How little you knew. Now um, it's my first rodeo, and yeah. boy, am I looking forward to it. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, Stephen, you looking at anything in the coming weeks other than those two? Redistricting, budget, I, I, things just pop up. Yeah. I, 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 that's the main thing I've found out is that <laughs> you show up to work one day expecting you'll be doing X and you end up doing Y. So, yes, very It'll be true. a great week. All right. Well, on that note, thanks for listening, and we will be back next week. <laughs>